Hi, this is Ed Cohen, uh, broadcast host, globalradiotalkshow.com. I'm in San Diego, and our special guests today are two people, Suman Chowdhury, he's in Mannheim, Germany, and Sandrine Bardot, she's in Dubai. And they have never met before, never have spoken a word. I'm bringing them together, and we're going to be talking about global HR and global compensation and benefit. So let's welcome Suman and Sandrine. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Real pleasure. And uh, hello, Sandrine. This is Showman from Germany. Hi, hi. I'm Sandrine. Nice to meet you. I want to introduce Solman. Uh, he is a business executive, has been on a business assignment, and we're going to do a talk show about his view of the current business scene. So I met Sandrine Solman in 1999 when Sandrine was involved with Microsoft Europe. Sandrine spoke at a conference I produced in Paris in 99. And that's how we met. And we've remained in contact all this time. It's, the, it's the power of uh, international uh, links that are not necessarily what we consider to be the strong links like a family, but actually can endure thanks to technology, actually, and a little bit of goodwill as well. <laughs> so, Suman, why don't you just talk a little bit with Sandrine about what you've been working on, particularly with a view towards global HR and global HR business partnering. Sure. And thank you once again for having me. I come from a background primarily in global mobility, which is the cross-border assignments uh, function. And along with that, I have also moved beyond global mobility to take on the entire HR shared services area, which includes payroll, time, benefits, the whole employee life cycle management. And I've been very fortunate to have had some good international exposures. I worked in Latin America in Mexico City. I worked in England. I'm right now based in Germany. And this is a very interesting field for me, which is the international HR and global mobility, because it is so fluid and so dynamic uh, that you really have to be on your toes. It keeps changing every other day. And probably now it is even more relevant considering all the expats, their families all over the world and struck in this pandemic and not knowing how to deal with it. So I think it's it's challenging times, but it's equally a big adventure for all of us who are in this profession. So tell me, in Germany, uh, are people working from home now? Yeah, people are working in Germany from home now. And in Germany, the lockdown has not been 100%. It's been like 90%. So the remaining 10% means that if you really have a need, you can still go to the office. Of course, you can go out for essential shopping and things like that. But primarily, everyone is working from home. And things have started to ease from today. And it's going to ease a lot more from next Monday, which is, I think, the fourth. What do you think about that, Sandrine? Well, we've had a full 24-7 lockdown in the UAE for about two weeks. And before that, we were all in lockdown, but we were able to go out during the day. 
only the night we were supposed to fully, fully stay at home. And for Ramadan, the authorities have relaxed a little bit as well, the possibility to go out. So I think we will not have a vaccine for a very long time. Not the whole population will have caught it for a very long time as well. So gradually, we need to learn to live with it and try to balance that need with that of still taking care of the more more vulnerable part of uh, the population. So it's a very delicate balance. I hope we can find the right way to do it. It's going to be tough. Solman, do you see in Germany, do you see companies keeping work from home as a vital part? I think what I see in Germany is the flexibility to work from home was always there. In certain certain functions, of course, less. Like, for example, if you are in manufacturing or production and if you have to be in a factory, typically if you look at the automobile sector or the pharmaceutical sector, if you have to be on site in a, in a plant, then, of course, you have to be there. But for the rest of the functions, even in those sectors, a fair amount of work from home was already present. Desktops are becoming and have become less relevant. Everyone is given a laptop, those who can work from home. But I definitely see the trend increasing now. And I think the production, manufacturing, industrial sector is going to readjust and realign itself in terms of how it deals with shifts, how it deals with workers, how it deals with people coming in into the plant and going. So I think that will also see a little bit of adjustment. But yes, on the whole, definitely I see the work from home increasing. So what about mobility? I think, and this is a very personal opinion from what I see around and what I hear, I think the traditional assignments and mobility is not going to disappear. It will remain because there is a very distinct need for the traditional long-term assignments when it comes to whether you are doing a skill transfer or emerging market or transition of leadership for whatever reason. But I think we will see different forms of mobility coming up. Uh, We will see more short-term assignments. We will see commuter assignments increase. We would see different types of mobility. So from a job mobility to an employee mobility. So until now, we have been moving people to where the work is needed to be done. We could potentially see a reverse flow where the work actually moves to where the talent is sitting. And if you see that, It brings in a whole lot of questions in terms of, okay, what does it mean for taxes, for social security, for immigration? How does it work? I think we would see a lot of rotational assignments, like project assignment type, quick turnover of people, not keeping someone for a very long time and giving chance to more and more people. So I think mobility will exist, but I think we will see some alternative modes of mobility come up quite fast. So I want to turn back to Sandrine and and welcome you again to uh, speak, of course. Sandrine, from a view of compensation and benefits for these rotational assignments, in other words, project work, and the idea of moving the work to where the people are, how does all that impact the idea of planning international comp and bent? Yeah, it's a very good question. Global mobility managers have already grappled with that for a while. I remember in my time when I was managing that, because you had the pure 
I would say, full international assignees who are deployed abroad for, let's say, typically three years, plus one, plus one. And then you have people who are more on what we call the local plus type of contract, which is, okay, you wanted to work in that area, but you're coming from a different country. So we give you a little bit extra compared to the local population. I agree that there will probably be a lot of redesign of work and it will affect mobility. I really like the comment of maybe potentially the work moving where the person is. And I think in a way, this is going to be a bit difficult for companies, but in a way it will open so many more opportunities as it will open the talent pool for companies. If they accept that the work not be located where necessarily there is a headquarters, but where the person is, they might be able to recruit and access talent that would not have moved because of family reasons or whatever, but who would be still interested to work for that organization. I see that more as a network type of organization rather than what we normally have, which is a remote work. Remote, I read somewhere, remote organizations imply that there's a headquarters, there's a central location. I think a network organization means the work is distributed and some industries, it will be much easier to do than others, definitely. Tobin? Yeah, I think I would tend to agree with that. And it's a big challenge for all rewards and compensation professionals to now start rethinking on how to design compensation and benefits for these kind of workers. And it is not that we don't have it. We have it in some form or the other already. We have gig workers. We have part-time workers. We have, uh, you know, work from home in some form or the other. The question is now that if you move the work to these people, how do you then plan out their whole compensation philosophy? And as Sandrine said very rightly, it opens up such a vast pool of talent that is so readily available. I mean, it is amazing what it can do, but of course it needs very solid management particularly for the functional head or the departmental head to manage 20 people in a team sitting in 15 different locations and coordinating. That itself is a huge nightmare and a challenge. So how about technology? Can we bring that in, Suman? What do you think of the new technology? Like all other functions, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, RPA, these are also being talked about in mobility and in the wider HR function. But I think where we need to be a little careful is mobility in particular is all about people. And it's extremely important to strike that right balance between technology and people and HR. There are definitely activities, for example, payroll, data integration of a payroll system with the co-HRIS system. You need a mobility platform. How efficient can you make? Absolutely, you can bring in more technology and you can improve the experience. But I think the danger is if we try to bring in a bot to substitute a real human, to do that advisory piece of mobility. And I think that is where we need to be very, very careful. It, it is the human element cannot be ignored. So I think what is important is technology with the right balance with people together will work well rather than an aggressive push with technology all through. 
But what about HR transformation, Sandrine and Suman, please? Sandrine, what do you think about HR transformation with the impact of robots, uh, the impact of technology? Yeah, so I was reading an article uh, yesterday and this gentleman was talking about this huge experiment of work from home that the whole world is undertaking at the moment and that the first phase is that of panic. The second phase is where most people are, which is we try to replace the office by working from home. So we still have the same number of useless meetings and so on. It's all replaced by technology. And the gentleman was talking, uh, he has experience, his whole company has been distributed right from the beginning as a business model. So there is not an office where everybody is. And he was saying that actually you have to become so much better at communication and also, so I don't know how to pronounce, asynchronous or asynchronous communication. So more like email actually, but like really structured, short, but to the point emails where instead of wasting 20 minutes in a meeting with 10 people, you have an email with five bullet points in it and a decision uh, made at the end. I think, and this leads into this uh, transformation, if we are going to digitize, we need to really rethink the processes, not just transform an inefficient paper-based and human-based process into an automated process done by a robot, but really think what is the purpose and how can we do that better and more efficiently so that the people who stay can focus on that element that uh, Suman was uh, mentioning of advisory, of coaching, of the human part of uh, human resources and supporting coaching managers, coaching employees and picking up on the weak signals because I think still as humans, we are better than machines for that, at least for another, hopefully, 20 or 30 years, hopefully more. So we still have an advantage compared to the machine. The machine can replace the repetitive work. It cannot replace the interactions, the the personal and the emotional interactions. And that's where we will focus more. So digitization will get us rid of some of the administrative processes so that we can focus more on data analytics on one side and on human relations on the other side. Yeah, I think transformation has been happening for a very long time in different forms and shapes. I think with the current experience that all of us are having, we need to really rethink the entire transformation ball game and how it needs to fit uh, for purpose. Typically, all transformation has been very focused on if you have a problem, look at how you can resolve that problem and therefore it becomes a transformation. So we have an HR information system. It doesn't work. Poor experience, replace it, do an RFP, get a new system, get away with it. But I think somehow we have missed the larger picture while doing transformation because nothing really works in isolation in transformation. Everything is interconnected. One action in one place can have a knock-on effect on two other different processes. So I think I completely agree with Sandrine that we really, really need to look at our processes and not just go about transforming them, but understand what these processes are leading to and what's the ultimate employee experience or the user experience. And that will be so critical to any transformation. If we can't get that experience piece right, I mean, 
we would have failed even before we would have started. Andrine. 200% uh, in agreement. I think EX and UX are really, really uh, so important when we're redesigning uh, ways of working, not just in HR, but uh, for the whole uh, digital transformation of, uh, of business. And whether it's a physical interface or a virtual one, uh, it's very, very important. And I think one of the skills that HR needs to think about and grow more these days has a lot to do with design thinking, where you place the user at the center of the of the design and you go through experimentation and rapid prototype and you learn from your failures and you you adapt rather than trying to plan everything in advance and having huge systems being rolled out and not checking first if it's going to to work for organizations and you even see that in in software design i mean some of the current software or systems that we use in HR are much more user-friendly than the big mastodons that were used 10, 15 years ago, where companies had to change their process in order to adapt to what the software was able to do, which was really weird. It should be the other way around. So definitely, this is going to be very important. So now I want to ask Suman, you're involved in this consultancy group. I think that's the right word consultancy with Harvard Square. What's that about? So Harvard Square was set up by somebody called Dan Hoyer, who's an ex-Harvard University alumni. And he set up this group to bring in different leaders and uh, subject matter experts into this group. He's just kicked off. It's not very old. And what he's trying to do is something very similar in terms of podcasts and and engagements and leadership sessions. And I think he's now kicking off with an MBA program, uh, like an online MBA program. So it's still in its earlier form, but I think it's, it's, it's a networking platform initially to start with, but then go beyond that to cash in on these experts and leaders who are part of that group to do some more meaningful work. Well, I'd like to recommend Sandrine Bardot, and compensation inside. Absolutely, I'll do that. Absolutely, I'll send it across. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so what do you think, you guys? Tell tell me uh, about the EU and, of course, all this crisis and all the confusion the past couple of years and yeah. the current pandemic is only exacerbating the differences, not the cohesion. So assuming you're right in the heart of it in Germany there in Mannheim, business center, right near Heidelberg. Boy, what a beautiful place that is. I bet you like Heidelberg, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful place, yeah. Yeah, so is uh, the EU going to break apart? What do you think? No, I don't think the EU is going to break apart. Rather, I think it's it's going to become a little bit stronger than it is now because fortunately – it has realized very, very quickly on where it went wrong. And this is the major, major difference when you look at this block with some of the other countries and the leaders. And they are very open to criticize each other. They would do it straight away in the parliament and saying that we should be ashamed and we apologize, but let's get on with it. Very few leaders do that. I think what they realize is that I mean, everyone in the world has been caught totally unprepared 
with this whole incident. But I think where the EU needs to get its act is, number one, I feel they need to look at GDPR totally. GDPR in its current form, I think, is not helping the EU to share information and data more readily and come up with a solution. There is so much of restrictions around GDPR that you can't even think of launching a tracing contact tracing app because there is so much of restriction and so many is feared. But then if you don't launch a contact tracing app, how do you even get to? So something basic is missing. So that's where it is. The second is where I think GDPR failed very momentarily is they all became very selfish and looking after their national interests in the middle of this crisis, forgetting the larger picture. But what is more beautiful is that when it was pointed out, they all got together so quickly that now they're just doing what needed to be done. So they are talking about solidarity. They're talking about a more larger fund. I mean, look at in March, Germany did not want to send masks to Italy. And now Germany is talking about the biggest contribution to the pandemic fund. So I think it's after all, all human behavior. Nobody was prepared, but they have come together very quickly. And I think we've got, at least in this regard, we've got some strong leadership from the French president, Emmanuel Macron. I know people don't like him, but if you look at Macron, if you look at Merkel, if you look at some of these people, I think the unique thing is they are able to come together very quickly to hold EU together. UK moving out was very unfortunate. I still remember the last speech from Michel Barnier in the EU Parliament, who said this is more of a temporary walkout. They would love to see EU, uh, UK come back. And I think somewhere down the line, that's likely to happen. So to answer net-net, I think the EU evolves stronger. We, they have already been given a timeline to put together a strategy, which they're working on. And I'm sure you will see that they will come together much stronger than they were. Sandrine, comment? Yeah, I, w- I, I agree. I think that Europe showed some of its uh, limitations because after all, as uh, Suman was saying, we're human, it's human reaction. And uh, there was a little bit of selfishness in the beginning. But I think that in the past 10 years, what we've seen, we had with the global crisis, we had the Greece issue with the uh, debt. Then we had the Brexit. Now we're having the COVID pandemic. And I think it's making younger generations like mine and uh, younger, so and pure Gen X, right in the middle of it, and younger generations realize the interest of being together. I think the generation of my parents and my grandparents understood it better because my grandparents lived in the war and they understood we needed to be together. My parents' generation was completely formed by those thinking, so completely believed in it and pushed for it. But Gen X and younger generations saw the fall of the Berlin Wall and so on, and there was less of a feeling that we need to be together because we have a common enemy. So I think that now we realize that it's not necessarily a threat of war that we need to come together. It's the uh, uh, economic prosperity of everybody 
let's be honest, it's our place in the world. I mean, if if you take France by itself, it's not our 66 million people are a drop compared to the number of Chinese or Indian population, Pakistani, Nigerian population, for example, or even American. We need to be together. And I think that seeing those limitations is waking up people and uh, hopefully will uh, lead to a stronger Europe. I, I agree. My opinion, it has to emerge stronger out of it. It will take time, but it, it has to. So, Suman, how can people get in touch with you? LinkedIn and email ID is fine to get in touch. And I try to respond as quickly as possible, even if it is an email from or a message from any stranger, someone I don't know, I still make it a point to at least reply. So I think that would be the best way. Okay, so that. Suman, S-O-U-M-E-N, last name Chowdhury, C-H-O-W-D-H-U-R-Y. And Sandrine, tell us about Compensation Insider. So there is my my blog at compensationinsider.com. And people can also see more about me on my LinkedIn profile. And I'm reachable by email. My email is sandrine at compensationinsider.com. Always happy to connect with more people. And I do a lot of informal advisory uh, sessions with people when they send me questions, you know, one-on-one. I tend to spend quite a lot of time doing that. I don't charge for I'm not like a lawyer charging for for every single minute. So I try to help. I think the rise, the the tide rises all boats, as, as we say. So when we get better answers, we all have more interesting work to do, I think. All right. And so thank you very much for being my guest. Uh, we did not set out to have a joint meeting, but I liked it. And thank you for playing this game. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was nice. Thank you very much, Ed. Okay. So there's Sandrine Bardot in Dubai and Solman Chowdhury in Mannheim, Germany. And I'm in San Diego, California. This is Global Radio Talk Show. Signing off. I think to myself, what a wonderful world.